This is the Dive Bomb Squadcast, presented by Dive Bomb Industries. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Dive Bomb Squadcast. I'm your host, Asher Tolliver. Whether you're at work, in the car, or at home, we sure appreciate you tuning in. We're having an absolute blast rolling right along through the season. Very thankful for the health and safety we've been blessed with so far. Today, I am joined on the phone by the editor-in-chief of Wildfowl Magazine, Mr. Skip Noel. Skip, what's good, my friend? How's it going, Asher? Thanks for having me, man. Absolutely. Thank you for joining me. Where are you joining me from today? Uh, South Central Colorado, where I call home. I was just thinking, how in the heck did the two of us get on the phone at the same time this time of year, in fact? <laughs> Dude. Yes, a lot of traveling, a lot of getting after. Obviously, you're into waterfowl hunting. A couple of weeks ago, you texted me you were going after an elk. And in addition to wildfowl, if I'm correct, you're an editor of Predator Nation and North American Elks. So where does your passion lie when it comes to hunting? Oh, if I, if there's hands down if I had to choose. I am a, a junk athlete as a hunter, you would say. I, there's not much I won't do. I would go out and shoot bullfrogs with a pellet rifle with you tomorrow, you know. In fact, I've done that with Fred Eichler quite a bit down with bows and arrows shooting bullfrogs. But, yeah, I mean, I couldn't live without waterfowling. It comes absolutely first and foremost. And the two other magazines I run, they're newsstand-only publications, and they're they're big leaders within their segment, but they're just twice a year newsstand-only. Mm-hmm. Wildfowl occupies 80, 85% of my time as a subscription magazine with a large subscriber base and many, many more issues than those other two. But I love them dearly. I do love to chase fur and every type. And um, I found myself home a lot more this this fall early due to some family stuff Mm -hmm. and uh, ended up hunting around here more. And I happen to live in a place where you can can chase a big vanilla bull elk, um, you know, within 25 minutes of my computer here where I produce wildfowl. But there's also decent duck hunting around here, too, and it gets really good as you go east into the plains in Colorado and mm-hmm. over toward Kansas. So I probably spend 10 days a year waterfowling for any day I get to fling an arrow, Man. for sure. You know, being in Colorado, you've got quite a lot to play with there close by, you know, when it comes to ducks. Big mm-hmm. Canada geese, you know, mid-sized interior Canada geese coming down the front range. Are are you a duck or a goose kind of guy? Uh, 50-50 all the way. Yeah. Yeah. You know, what um, style? You know, I'm, do you like shooting them over water? Do you like shooting them in the field? What do you? I mean, what what gets you going? I uh, grew up and like well, I'm all over the place. Um, and North Florida, South Texas, and uh, in the plains of Eastern Washington, and almost universally, I associated ducks with water and i learned to duck hunt long before i learned to goose hunt goose hunting came in my 20s in eastern washington in the columbia basin and i learned to field hunt and everything there um but yeah my deepest love is, is hunting over water for sure but ducks or geese that's a fool's errand man i mean you can't you can't choose so ducks come in a blizzard of varieties and, and there's so much uh, i just love what you guys have done with the the different t-shirts and the branding and showing all the ducks and their different personalities and the wood duck with the flannel it's shirt and the fun, axe man. over its shoulder. Oh my gosh, it's just brilliant. That does kind of illustrate the diversity and everything we love about ducks. I just read another editor, editor letter about that and how their lifestyles are just amazing. Um, 
the different places they nest, the different yeah. ways they adapt to everything, and and it's it's incredible. Uh, the richness in, in ducks for sure, but but geese are the big game. I always tell everyone when you're laying in a field and the geese stop paddling at 200 yards and you know they're coming low mm-hmm. on the deck, and that's the thing that makes you fight for your breath. That's the closest thing to big game hunting that exists in waterfowling. When they when they swing by just out of range and you hear them moaning, and almost you can hear their bones creaking. Sometimes it seems like incredible, man. That's the that's the biggest rush I think in waterfowling. But day in day out, I don't think I could live without duck hunting. Yeah. I'm a duck hunter. I mean, I grew up in Arkansas, like you. Duck hunting over water is what I've done my entire life since I was just a little kid going with my dad. And I've grown to love it all. I love hunting geese. I love specks. I mean, Arkansas is a a wonderful destination for wintering speckle-bellied geese. I love snows, you know, the light geese. It's fun. Big Canada's, little Canada's, interior Canada's, but but when it all comes down to it, even you know cranes, when it comes down to it, I'm a duck hunter, man. I love mallard ducks. You know, I'm I'm very blessed in a position to get to travel a lot, see a lot of incredible things. And the question I constantly get, I mean, every couple of days, especially this time of year, it feels like people say, "What what's your favorite? Like, what's your favorite?" place to visit what's your favorite thing to hunt and that's kind of a loaded question because every area is special in its own way but honestly there's no place on the planet that i've ever been that i would rather be than 40 miles east of where i'm sitting right now in the flooded timber bottoms of arkansas chasing mallards i mean it's just that's in my blood it doesn't matter where i go or what i do that's always going to be what brings me back home and it's just it's so deeply just mallard ducks in the trees is so deeply rooted in me i don't think there's anything i could possibly do waterfowling that could ever take the place of that being number one and like i said i love them all but yeah there's just nothing that comes close for me um it just can't explain it man it's just the woods are a magical place when they come alive and they're doing it right and i just don't feel like there's anything in in the waterfowl world that can that can replicate it but that's that's up for discussion that's just my personal opinion but that's it's coming from an arkansas guy so yeah no it's there's a there's a powerful affinity from where you're from for anybody i know so many amazing uh midwest whitetail hunters who've gone who've just out in life, like our publisher, Layden Force, who's he's managed to go out and hunt big game and all over the, the planet, it seems like at times. And but there's nothing ever going to be anything like for him, you know, big, big yellow horns in the woods in Missouri at home. Mm-hmm. It's just because mm-hmm. it's right there in his DNA. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I have a, a powerful affinity for mallard hunting because of my uh, I really cut my teeth on, on duck hunting in eastern Washington and the Columbia Basin there, and you know the land of the seven mallard limit right mm-hmm, that's right and yeah we used to hunt in uh Moses lake in the potholes region yeah. and, and just uh gosh i thought it was you're supposed area. to shoot but you're supposed to shoot limits of mallards you know on, on public <laughs> land normal, over water <laughs> every day supposed to get a couple supposed to get a couple bands every trip that's and right supposed supposed to be sunny like it is in eastern washington not western washington you know i'm spoiled man Oh yeah, I didn't. Know. You don't know mm-hmm. when you're young, you know. You think this is how it's supposed to be, right. and I didn't even know what I was missing then because I lived in Western Washington, 
really only found out later about about harlequin duck hunting and uh and, you know the black brant that were available i'm like one two bird lemon i'm not gonna bother with that i'm going to eastern washington to shoot mallards you know but but the, the availability of the geese in western washington especially some giant honkers um you know wasn't even on the radar as much as heading east for green heads in the sun and uh Man, it's a powerful thing where you're from and what's what's in your blood for sure. But I am kind of peripatetic in my attention span. Um, <laughs> my favorite hunts are one coming up, man. I'm very excited about yes. this trip I'm going on in Montana in two weeks. That's one of the very few places that haven't hunted waterfowl. and can't wait to see what's up there. Seems late in the season there to me, but um, they're like, no, no, you don't know. You can be hitting it just right. Yeah, I'm pretty it should excited. Be. It's been an unusual year so far, very mild, but old man winter could could you know rear his teeth anytime so it, it changes things really really quick especially in the upper states and the flyway so oh it's we'll happening here happens. quickly yeah just i'm glad we're on the phone and not on wireless to do this uh podcast because we just they predicted a 10 mile an hour wind today and we have a it sounds like a 30 mile an hour gale coming up and it was 81 degrees here in south central colorado on saturday you know just before halloween and we're now we're finally getting in the 30s at night, just like that. Boom! So it all bodes well for the duck hunter, you know. Sure. How far are you from like Colorado Springs? I'm on a straight west, uh, southwest, one hour in the mountains. Gotcha. Um, now we're west of Pueblo as well. And I say in the mountains because I live at 6,000 feet, but it's a giant valley over 100 miles long, the Arkansas River Valley, and there's some birds up and down it the whole way. And um, I'm kind of in that transition area where it opens up into more open country again. There's a fair amount. It's real spotty, um, and it's a lot of private land. But when you can get it right from here to Pueblo Reservoir, it can get real exciting. Yeah. One thing about staying home more this year is I, my kids are just getting old enough to get out, and we've uh, hunted up and down the Arkansas a lot more than I've gotten to in the past. And we aren't banging limits. Um, I just saw from that video I sent you the other day. Um, uh, my buddies sent a neener neener um, videos from Alberta with giant critter piles chest high. And, uh, you know, I was pretty proud of our wood, wood duck or two, you know, right. but we've seen some exciting stuff. It's different hunting a river Valley. And but I saw flocks of like 25 wood ducks. And you don't see that every day. Yeah. Just keep in perspective, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's fun. There's a, it'll surprise you out here, but you know, the real show as far as Colorado is that Kansas border for sure. Yeah. Yeah. But it, it has been a delayed year. I think it's going to be a barn buster year. I was talking to Matt Ekron. Um, he was formerly a Dirty Bird Outfitters. He was guiding for Swift uh, Flyway Outfitters, I think. Swift River. And uh, he's with uh, Flyways Ferris, uh, a company he started right now. Flyways Finest, I think it's called. Yeah. But he was like, man, Skip, it's October 10th in northern Saskatchewan. We haven't had a frost yet. He goes, we're pounding. Yeah, right? I mean, that's insane. We're pounding the juvenile snow geese. He goes, it's really good to see that there's a juvie hatch because we hadn't uh, had any kind of major flyaway surveys like normal, so mm-hmm. we didn't know what was going to be up there. Sure. There's lots of juvies around, but we're not seeing the big numbers yet. I think there's going to be a real surge at the end of October, and from all indications, that everyone watching what you guys have done and what my friends in Alberta and Saskatchewan have done, he's right. There's a there's just like a a giant wave of birds coming, and it's it's exciting. Absolutely, Skip. Let's rewind a bit. Can you tell us a little bit about your background and 
the path that ultimately led you to where you are today? I mean, I know you've mentioned a few times some of the places you've bounced around, but just getting into a little bit more detail there. Sure. I uh, was born in Virginia, but moved immediately to South Texas, Corpus Christi area, you know, the redhead capital. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And uh, my father was a personnel manager for the government, but we tended to work around military bases. But he's a fanatical old Virginia gentleman, Chesapeake Bay outdoors, and we were his ancestors were watermen and we were and Navy people and we were, I was born on Chesapeake Bay. And uh, shortly after that, we moved to Florida, but my dad was a fanatical hunter and uh, cared so deeply about it and about stewardship of the environment. Um, I was mortified when I found out that people in Arkansas <laughs> shoot birds on the water and make it a point of pride to land them mm-hmm. because my dad would have taken a switch to my butt if he'd known um, if I had shot quail on the ground or anything like that. He's old Virginia Southern gentleman, you know, and um, uh, he uh, he instilled all that in me. I remember I got switched once on the on the bottom for bringing a loaded pellet gun in the house. That was that was my dad, and uh, we talked about. I think deep in his heart, he'd always wanted to be an outdoor writer, and we talked about, and he he um, raised me on on the outdoor magazines, field and stream sports, the field and everything. And I always just loved him. I'd disappear with him. I think I was eight years old, and he was—he told me I, I was talking about what I wanted to be when I grew up. And he goes, "If you play your cards right, man, someone will pay you to do what you'd rather be doing uh, for a living." And I said, "Dad, no one's going to pay me to hunt and fish." And he goes, "Well, slow down. You might be surprised." And he talked about me becoming an outdoor writer. And, and in high school, I—I've learned that I really loved writing, and uh, it came very naturally for me. So I was blessed to have this father that steered me on the path right away to just follow my passion. And uh, I never have done anything since. I majored in journalism and Washington State University in college. Uh, my family moved from um, Florida to Seattle area. So I went to high school in Western Washington and um, did lots of hunting and fishing, shot my first deer and on Mount Rainier on public land as a kid. And we just thought all you did was hunt public land. I never hunted private land, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, that's that's kind of the story. That's where I really got into waterfowling was in Washington. Uh, and uh, when uh, it was time to go to college, I said, "How far can I get away from Seattle and all this wet weather?" And went over to Pullman on the Idaho border. There went to Washington State University and majored in journalism. I majored in pheasants and minored in journalism. Actually, <laughs> I would say. <laughs> you mentioned and, uh, the other day you were going to be in Mena, Arkansas, for Thanksgiving. You're visiting your parents on the family farm where i haven't heard mina or arkansas mentioned in in this equation at all so where for those listening mina the reason that kind of struck with me mina's it's about two and a half hours west southwest of me here in north Little rock so where did that where does that come in come on asher wasn't there a major hollywood movie about mina recently it was uh it's a booming place gosh. population coming in just over five thousand <laughs> No, there was a movie. I'm serious about that. It was some major star like Mel Gibson, and it was about um, some big smuggling. It was a conduit for crazy airlines. Tom Cruise. Oh, Tom Cruise. uh, American, um, what is it? The uh, American May. American May smuggling the the, uh, drugs up in the plane. Yeah, pilots, right. And yep. I don't know why in the hell they chose me in Arkansas to go to, but yep. I need to, I haven't seen the movie, but my yep. mom was very excited Dude, about it's it. It's a really, really cool movie. Barry Seal was the guy's name. He was recruited by the CIA 
Um, oh, oh, yeah, and, and well, I'll watch it for sure, and yeah. then I'll, I'll be pumped to go to Mina in two weeks see my parents. Yeah, he <laughs> like found himself in charge of one of the biggest covert CIA operations like in the history of the United States. It was, it wow. was, yeah, it was. This operation was spawned like the birth of the Medallion Cartel, and like it, it, it was, it's it's intense, man. Go check it out. I, can't I don't want to get off in the weeds too. Yeah, yeah, we'll get going way too far. But great movie. I don't want to go way out in the weeds, but I, I was wondering why they chose me to Arkansas because yeah. there, there's not any ducks. I think they they would want to go somewhere. You would was good. You would think. <laughs> but how but, did me to answer your question? Yeah. To answer your question, my parents when we lived in South Texas, they just loved it. They fell in love with it, and then we moved to Florida, and they liked it, but didn't love it as much. And we went to Seattle area. We were west of Seattle, about an hour across the water um Bremerton area um and we all scattered like quail and went to college and the kids me and my uh, two sisters and my little brother um and they retired and they were had always thought that whole time they'd go back to the to Texas and they loved the hill country and they went back there in I don't know 2006 7 around then and the hill country was really taking off was, you know right pre it was actually during the real estate bubble and uh, they had fantasized about getting a little ranch and at a reasonable price that they had always seen. And of course, uh, everything had gone through the roof and they basically like, we can't get enough bang for our buck here. And someone said, you should look at Arkansas. So they went straight East and found this beautiful little hay farm on the uh, Mount home river in the Ozarks, the foothills of the Ozarks mm-hmm. there. And it's just a gorgeous place. I think they got a, they got a great big house and a pond and three quarters of a mile of river for like $320,000. Oh, yeah. So That's yeah, it was like, man. No brainer. He went so much further than Texas. I'm like, yes, yes, my parents are pine land in Arkansas, West Waterfront. Michelle, I'm going to inherit an amazing place to duck hunt. This is incredible. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Because you associate the the word Arkansas with ducks. (laughs) (laughs) I've been snow goose hunting in Jonesboro and I've been all over. I thought the whole state was great. Yeah, no, no. Nope. (laughs) Draw that line down the middle. If you go west, you uh don't get me wrong there's some places you can get into them in the arkansas river valley but yeah when you go west particularly southwest uh yeah not so much <laughs> no I, I joke it's just hoodies and woodies hooded, right. hooded magnesers and, and wood ducks right. and, right. and very tricky um resident honkers that are hard to even shoot on the roost because it has so much water to choose from yes. there. it's no, any no. pressure and they're gone you, we get a good shoot there about every other year a lot of uh, uh ring nets uh and and uh the occasion my dad calls them bluebills of course um and occasionally we get flights of mallards but every other year we get like one good shoot but yeah that's awesome more often than not we turn on the fox pros and just shoot the hell out of crows when i'm there absolutely <laughs> Arkansas. very cool all right. Well, this is a waterfowl podcast. So let's talk about Wildfowl Magazine. I've actually got one here on my desk, and I particularly like this one. There's a section in here about new strategies for weary greenheads, and our owner, Cody Stokes, and I both got some love in this one, giving our two cents on tactics that can be applied to these stingy birds. You're the editor in chief, so I know it came across your desk. We appreciate the love, Skip. It means a lot, man. 100%. We loved having you guys in there. Um, fresh faces, new attitudes, new. Uh, you guys are just a lot of fun. You're absolute experts. You're well traveled. And I knew you could speak to that subject very well. 
um, because you're because you're traveling so much and people are so much cynicism especially in places like arkansas which by the way still kills more ducks than any other state that's right um, <laughs> about how it's not any good anymore and people are like the ducks are nocturnal no they're all intercepted in missouri no they just don't come um, far enough south anymore and I'm like well things do move and shift around sure. um and uh but there's some other areas that are emerging i'm like let's talk about the, the emergent areas and do a story i mean, that's what inspired that whole thing absolutely man it's like a pie you know you push down in the middle of that thing and that that um you know that crust it starts expanding off to the outside that doesn't mean the middle the hunting can't still be really good there it just means it's you know expanding to some other places similar to what the uh the birds are doing now i want to dive a little deeper into what you do being an editor-in-chief i'm guessing your main role is you determine the look and the feel of the publication and ultimately have the final say and what is published and what isn't is that how close yeah that's fair that's (laughs) fair enough yeah i'm i'm the one that um, tries to keep my finger on the pulse of the audience and what they want. And um, okay. we bear them in mind first and foremost. Uh, we never take them for granted, man. We always think of our reader. It's a bunch of hardcore people. Um, and we have a, a good breakdown of the demographic and what they're interested in and try and focus on that kind of story that we were just talking about. A lot of it's brainstorming. A lot of it's having talented writers that come to you with ideas that you then work with them to shape and morph and vet. But we have a talented art director uh chuck beasley who um he he really creates the look at the feel and the layouts of the magazine i provide the the day-to-day what you want to read the content in terms of um subject matter mm-hmm. and uh he takes everything that i bring on in the house with the help of uh, nathan ratchford our talented associate editor um and he massages it around and helps paint the picture that you see in terms of layout and everything else, the look and the feel of the magazine. Mm-hmm. And then I'll, I'll push back and say, this is good, and this could use some work. And, and uh, okay. our digital editor, Chris Ingram, helps spin it all on the web and uh, spread it across all the different platforms that we're now engaged in, much more than the past. So, okay. yeah, it's a, it's a small skeleton crew, but we're incredibly passionate about it, and our publisher-laden force um, really is super supportive in terms of um, providing some direction and uh, in terms of um, where we need to go with the magazine in terms of uh, the audience and, and to make it thrive and be successful in the modern environment. He's a great leader in that regard and a passionate hunter and end user as well. Every single one of our, our team is, and that's, that makes a big difference. Even the art director, so many art directors are, you know, graphics guys, uh, Chuck Beasley there in Minnesota is a passionate hunter and he loves it. And he's into it. You know, that makes a big difference and shows in his work. Yeah. I actually got a message on, uh, not Instagram, Facebook from Chris yesterday. And he was asking about the, um, the dry duffel bags and he was talking about putting something together for their uh, digital gift guide. So I uh, shot him over some images. I thought, that was pretty cool. Yeah, he's, he's he's fantastic. He's new. He's a new addition. We've had a skeleton crew for years, and, and honestly, we've uh, lagged behind on the social digital side of things a bit um, just due to manpower. Um, but the company has seen fit to invest and brought on Chris full-time as a full-time digital editor. And uh, we have a new uh, Nathan Rashford came aboard as associate editor last year. He's fantastic. He's my partner in, in our squad cast. <laughs> and uh, he's a... Uh, 
really good at the social media side of things. And we, we started building that up a few years ago. And, you know, it's, it's, uh, we've been associated with the magazine and the brand so heavily for so long, but we're, we're branching out as fast as we can and across all the platforms. I don't mean to talk shop too much. It's kind of not the most exciting, but at the end of the day, you know, the passion drives the thing I always say. And, and we have a, a bunch of passionate hunters on, on board that are, thinking every night and day about how they can make the magazine more intriguing to hunters. And they get, they get the way hunters think, you know, um, in terms of what people are interested in. We, we have, we try and strive for a balance in the magazine between tactics and, uh, and things that'll make people more successful in the field with, uh, just some exciting topics like the emergent emergence of uh, new areas that are, going to be awesome for duck and goose hunting mm-hmm. uh, combined with some news and then combined with some of the passion um, the lore the history of the sport you know the nostalgic side of it is that is so important and unique to waterfowling compared to so many other forms of hunting you know mm-hmm. we're, we're in love with our past as much as our future and our present <laughs> and it's a big part of who we are whether you're talking about the commercial hunting days um, in the place i was born on chesapeake bay or um, you know the the eruption of snow goose hunting and and what it takes to get involved and, and witness a, a snow nato and mm-hmm. that's a it's such a broad rich sport in that regard definitely how long have you been with i mean not, not even necessarily editor-in-chief but with wildfowl magazine or writing for them i uh, became editor-in-chief in 2011 actually so okay. almost a decade now yeah i keep looking at a different things and opportunities and areas I want to grow, but my heart is just so much with this magazine and this brand. And, did you just start and, out uh, as a, a writer or what, how, how did you get into that position? Oh, I graduated from journalism school at Washington state university in the early nineties and went straight into newspaper writing. And within less than a year, I became an editor for uh, fishing and hunting news out of Seattle. Okay. I, uh, <laughs> I uh, had limped across the street with a bread bag full of change. I was in college, broke as hell, had a broken leg actually from playing rugby. That was my other, was my other college passion. I had air casts on, was sleeping in my truck in, in Winthrop, Washington. And uh, through a bizarre, I found the, the first bar that had a bunch of pickup trucks in front of it because I had nothing, knew nothing about this area and I had a weird late season deer tag. Went in there, bought a couple guys a beer, got a cut on a great hunt. And uh, went back to my new, didn't, didn't get a buck, but fell in love with that area, as I tend to everywhere I go. I went back to my newspaper job, and, and like six months later, one of the guys in that bar knew a guy who had just taken over uh, Fishing and Hunting News in Seattle, which was a regional publication that at the time was really uh, influential and had a big, a big audience. Um, and they hired me as a, a regional editor on the spot. And I did that for four years, had the time of my life, and went from there to Utah, covered the Olympics, and uh, worked at the Salt Lake Tribune as their head outdoor writer for four or five years, and detoured into the magazine business as an editor for a bunch of luxury magazines out of Park City, if you could believe, for five years. And then then, uh, went to work with Peterson's Hunting in Peoria, Illinois, as the associate editor in 2010. And then uh, Paul Waite moved on to Delta. My company owns about 15 magazines, and Pierce Tunning and um, Wildfowl uh, are under the same roof. Mm-hmm. And I jumped over to at the chance to take over Wildfowl. 
I've been waterfowl hunting on and off my whole life, and it spoke to me deeply. I'd always had labs, um, but it was always something I'd wanted to do a lot more of, and I thought, here's my chance, and jumped in feet first, and, and I've uh, had the time of my life ever since. Absolutely but awesome. to answer your question, I've done nothing but avoid real jobs and been a magazine editor or writer my entire life. Editor. Cannot beat that. Do you feel like, you know, been been writing your whole life, but, you know, wildfowl for a decade. Do you ever struggle with trying to keep things fresh with your audience? I mean, the good thing is waterfowl. There's so many variables in so many areas with gun shells, dogs, ducks, geese different species but but even still when you do something that long and have a magazine that covers so much in each version that's published do you is that something you ever struggle with do you feel like your brain ever just like man like this is i'm just feeling like not fresh right now does that ever happen so we run through themed issues you know typically we have a heavy on geese and teal in September and ducks, 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 and more geese and, um, and through late fall. And then then the focus is on dogs in the spring and boats. And when I look at the subject, the boats in summer, you know, before a giant gear issue, when I look at the subject, sometimes I'll end up scratching my head a little bit, feeling like I've been there before. But then when you barely scratch the surface because of what you just said, Asher, um, that waterfowling is so dynamic and there's so much different, um, so many different species, techniques, tactics. There's always something we haven't covered, whether it's layout boats on the Great Lakes, uh, a different the, the explosion in spec hunting in Arkansas, and the shift of uh, spec hunting from you know the Texas coast sure. and to Arkansas. And there's always so much going on with waterfowl. There's this little um, company that started really uh, bringing a hot white spotlight back on silhouettes here not too long ago. Yeah. <laughs> but no you guys are a prime example of and you guys have taken a you, you started with your silhouettes and you're going big but that's an area that's really grown so explosively and and it's dynamic and cool and it's learning all over again i feel as long as we're learning something you know and there's and waterfowling so dynamic from coast to coast i still feel like we haven't done nearly enough on california we're doing better there mm-hmm. but you know, they just can't feel like you've done everything or covered everything in waterfowling. I think, uh, I look at my brother and like we own, my company owns North American Whitetail, Bowhunter, Peterson's Bowhunting. Mm-hmm. And uh, I look at those guys and how they have to struggle to get another photo of a guy holding a, a whitetail deer in there or another photo yeah. of a deer trip going through the leaves or another guy in a tree stand. Yeah. That's what they're limited to, right, you know? Right, I look at those guys. Well, that's go, what was going I'm through the my luckiest mind. guy on yeah, earth. that's What's right. That? that was kind of what was going through my mind when we started talking about how waterfowl is so dynamic. The next thing that hit me in the head while you were talking was like, man, those poor guys that are writing for whitetail magazines. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Exactly. I could write. You know, six six issues. We could do six issues full of different um, snow goose techniques, up and down the flyways, and and uh, the guns, and and the. Uh, I mean, that's such an amazing subject. And then, I mean, Florida. We haven't even covered Florida nearly enough. And I grew up there in North Florida. My father saying, "Son, we're outside the flyway. The duck, the duck hunting is just no good here." I lived there for six years, and we shoot some widgeon and wood ducks and stuff. And you know. 15 years later, I found found out that in a cold winter, that east central part of Florida has some amazing waterfowl. I mean, don't get the greenheads, but you get a lot of pintail, bluegill, gadwall. And, uh, you know, there's just so much to discover out there yeah. in waterfowl. Do you ever do much writing 
anymore these days or are you more leading the publication team of editors copy editors and writers um writing's my first love and um that's my fastball personally and my, my own toolbox it's mm -hmm. it's it's what i'm probably best at and so i foolishly stick with that and i write way too much <laughs> i do i write i write constantly for predator north american elk and heavily heavily in, in wildfowl uh, every trip that I end up going on um, ends up being a deadline for me in terms of a story that I'm going to write. And I love shooting photos. And, and um, my whole staff does, you know. Uh, our staff probably writes about as heavily as any of the magazines that's in our company um, as, in terms of just actually writing ourselves instead of contracting freelancers uh -huh. and or staff writers. So to answer your question, I, answer, I, I generally end up getting a, at least a feature story every other issue. Of course, plus my editor letters are, they're not normal. They're not uh, the 300, 400 words, you know, guys talking about what's in this issue. Mm -hmm. I tend to tell a, a long, elaborate, exciting story <laughs> like uh, like in this upcoming issue, the one we just went to press with in December. I wrote a story about, it was pretty comical about on one of my first snow goose hunts with a bunch of wild men out of Chicago and an old redneck who carried an actual train whistle around his neck. He would blow every time we had a, a train wreck, so to speak. <laughs> I love it dearly, man. I'd write more if I could, you know, I'm, to answer your question. I'm looking at this editor's call in this magazine. Uh-oh, which one? Well, this one I've got on my desk. It's the, the, the Black Duck Boom, the one that I was refer referencing oh, yeah. just a moment ago. How, yeah, long, how long does that take? How long does that take you to write that? That one is a, a celebration of my company's directive for uh, my outdoor television. It was more of a, it wasn't a normal editor's letter. It was something to help push and get people excited about a, um, a direction that the, the company is going overall in an effort to be like essentially the Netflix of um, the outdoors. So that, oh, that wasn't a normal editor letter. But um, like I said, I, I don't know what other writers, how long it takes them, but I wrote a, I was inspired to answer your question. I was inspired by uh, taking my kids uh, on a local wood deck hunt here on the river and seeing how my little boy went out for the first time here. Uh, but last week I, got, I woke up, it was the end of the deadline cycle. It was time to write my editor letter. And I cranked out this piece about the kids wrestling the dog and the blind and my, my nine-year-old daughter still not being old enough to shoot a shotgun and how exciting it was to see her just, get freaked out about taking over the dog um luna my black lab she had a um you know helped raise that dog forever throwing her retrieves throwing her retrieves but never really seeing what she was born to do so much sure. and uh anyway i wrote this this heartfelt thing about the kids and the dogs and i realized you know i woke up at like 4 a.m going this is the snow goose big goose late season december issue that thing you just wrote is perfect for the spring issue and the dog issue. And I got started thinking about snow geese while I was laying there in bed, stare at the ceiling and, and got all worked up about the story. I just told you about, about, you know, my first experience in Northeast Arkansas. And, and I jumped out of bed and I cranked that one out <laughs> in an hour. And it was, uh, it was about 900 words and a page and a half long. And, and I just love it so much. Just, well, what did Vandemore always say? You know, if you're doing what you love, you never feel like you're working. And, and that's that's the case with me in writing for sure. So but, I cranked out two of those in about three hours, <laughs> just because I love to do it so much. Awesome. There's no drudgery in them. What would you say would be the longest 
feature story that you've ever written, like as far as time, one that just, it maybe just wasn't flowing right, or it was something that you really, really wanted to do it justice, and you just really mulled over it. Is there any of those that come to mind that just felt like it was, you were never going to get through it or tell the story properly? Um, God, I don't want to sound immodest here, but I never struggle with, um, with outdoor related writing because it's just so much in my veins. You know, you just love it. I'm always a storyteller by trade. My dad was too. Um, the, the most time I'd ever struggle with is, um, wondering if it's good enough writing something and maybe going back and changing a lead or saying, Oh, um, I fell in love with my own voice here a little bit. Don't take the reader for granted. You right. know? Sure. Make sure that they have they know within the first few paragraphs why they're writing this. But as far as an outdoor story, a major feature story, I'm, I'm maybe four or five hours. Yeah. But what I like to do is is write them and then revisit them, and I find that I can always improve them. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I have done investigative journalism piece pieces for major uh, da- daily newspapers that were just gigantic front page stories. Um, one of them was involving a pretty scandalous bobsled crash. You know, that was weeks and weeks and weeks of interviewing and investigative reporting. and It's a whole different thing. So to answer your question, generally on on my, my current job as the editor of Wildfowl and writing about the outdoors, it just, it's like sitting down, having a beer and talking with a, with a friend like you and, mm-hmm. and uh, letting it loose and then soliciting, the, you know, calling Cody Stokes or you and getting some good quotes on, on a subject. So it's not just a one man pontificating to a, the crowd, but getting some expert opinions and plugging them in and mm-hmm. it doesn't take that long, but, yeah. but, uh, you have written stories that took weeks, even months. <laughs> now your articles, <laughs> we mentioned that, you know, you, you guys are very good at covering a lot of this stuff, you know, in house, knowing what your audience wants, but say there is a writer out there that would like a shot or he wants to get something out there. Do you guys take submissions from freelance writers that are relevant for the time of year? Oh, 100%. I've run stuff that wasn't even properly submitted. Absolutely. We'd love to hear from anybody who's had an amazing experience. And uh, I, I love that stuff. Is it? That's the old mainstream journalist in me. Um, I'm just not here with my group of hunter friends. I love people's stories. Um, mm-hmm. We love to to not just talk about a specific type of hunting, but to have someone's personal story to illustrate it. You know, I want to know where Asher Tolliver um, is coming from, how he got to start. You know, I want to know when he snapped about duck hunting. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, that's absolutely, I'll give you a great example. Um, last year when I went to do the December issue, um, we were talking about, it had uh, some late season duck hunting and the usual mix of snow goose hunting and some late season honker stuff. But, uh, but I'm talking about human elements, someone's story, right? That's what it, I didn't, we like to have an exciting story, not just the facts, so to speak. Sure. And this, this handwritten letter crossed my desk <laughs> from this guy who's talked about um, late season. I just wanted to share, he was responding to an editor letter where I wrote about some weird adventure I had. Have you had a weird adventure? I solicited at the end and he wrote, this long handwritten letter, I think it's four or five pages, about um, going about how weird it was when COVID struck at the end of 2019. No, it was 2020. Um, yeah, it was the end of 2020, and the country was just on lockdown. And he went out, and he goes, the gas stations were closed, and 
the hotels were mostly closed and he just ventured out and he couldn't get anybody to go with him. And he was living in Alabama at the time. I got to truncate this story a little bit. I'm talking too much, but I get excited about this stuff. This handwritten letter came across from this guy who'd driven from Alabama to the South Dakota and North Dakota to just chase, chase snow geese. And it's something he'd done um, with only a thousand decoys himself year after year and he talked about he just painted this haunting picture of him and a borrowed teenager one of his friends who couldn't go sent his son and the, the schools were closed anyway so the kid did his lap his homework on his laptop in his truck <laughs> while he scouted geese and i don't know if you saw it um i got so fired up about his story he painted this dystopian uh tale about traveling for snow geese all across the land this empty haunted land and all the empty stores and stuff and uh how victorious they were when they finally killed some birds and um it was just a really cool story cool. and he didn't su- submit that with anything but as a reader letter mm-hmm. or just a, just a letter to the editor because he wanted to share his story i called him up this guy from deep south alabama right he's like yeah well i didn't know it was me and this 13 year old dog <laughs> I'm like, whoa, 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 you're not from Alabama. He goes, yeah, I'm a bail bondsman from Philly. I just retired in Alabama. Uh, <laughs> absolutely killed me. I'm like, now I love the story even more. He's, yeah. So last year, his dog came home. It was a 13-year-old dog. He had a 13-year-old dog and a 16-year-old boy. And they headed out and, and, and had this great story. And I ran it almost word for word, and I put it in a handwritten font. I talked to my art director, Chuck. And he, uh, I thought this would really needs a personal touch. So instead of the usual typeface you see in a magazine, mm-hmm. uh, it was basically a, a handwritten cursive font mm-hmm. that we used, and it was really cool. I don't that know if you is saw it. Cool, that's really cool. I'm gonna have to see if I can go back and find that. It sounds like a, a great story. So, so yes, we take line, submissions on the same <laughs> line. On the same line as that. Um, what about a photographer? Say they feel their the qualities there, and they. I want to get my stuff in a magazine. What would be the best route for somebody like that to be even considered? Oh, to uh, this has gotten so much easier. Life's gotten so much crazier and busier um, in the digital age of social media, and we all have ten times more jobs. Though it's created a lot more opportunity. Yeah, you know, people we people post stuff on Instagram and tag us if it catches our eye. We've run so much cool stuff. Um, Layden Force, our publisher, noticed Hunter Eckert's stuff, and he's not someone that had ever crossed our radar before, young guy um, on Instagram. And if you saw that September, that kick-ass September cover we had of a young guy leaning over, setting a decoy in the dark, and the decoy's in his, uh, in his headlight beam. It's just a really cool cover, nothing like anything we'd ever had. We got that off an Instagram contact with him. And I don't know if he'd ever been published or if, uh, certainly not in a, in a hunting magazine with my company and certainly not a cover shot. And we've had cover shots from people as young as Brandon Fine, for instance, uh, 14 or 15 years old when he started shooting for us. And he was an Internet discovery. Um, I mean, Instagram discovery. So uh, my advice first, absolutely, yes, we're interested in anything that's really cool. And we're not beholden to specific people because of. Um, past or present loyalties. We're open to whatever's cool, whatever's good, mm-hmm. whatever we think will engage the Asher Tollivers of the world. You guys are so exceptional at that. Um, I've reached out to you guys a couple of times for photos because of uh, you guys have done such an amazing job of getting interesting angles and new angles with Dive Bomb that catch people's attention. So people can post it on Instagram and uh, direct message us or tag us at Wildfowl Mag and yeah, we, if, if it if it catches our attention, we are in. 
Now, is this a situation where the photographers are just happy to have their image featured and they can put that in their portfolio or their resume, or is this something that you guys are having to pay the photographer to use them? Oh, we will absolutely pay people if we run it. Yeah, yeah I got you. 100%. You know, the prices range from cover to, you know, partials on the inside, but absolutely we pay folks. You And I assume you, you're the one. Are you solely choosing those cover photos, or do you uh, look it over and you guys determine, or are you pretty much making that decision? I make the final decision, but it was 100% a team effort. Yeah. You know, I value the input of everyone. and Sure. Uh, we, got a, we got a wildly cool snow goose cover coming up. Um, and Nathan Ratchford, my, uh, I had, it had crossed my radar like earlier in the year, uh, as a really cool photo, but I didn't flag it. Nathan Ratchford, my, uh, associate editor back in April said, Hey man, this should be our next snow goose cover. So it's, and he was right. And he brought it back up, uh, in the fall and, and reminded me. And so, I mean, he found that photos for all practical purposes and it's a, it's a huge team effort. Fortunately, since everyone's an end user, like I said, we tend to concur in a hurry. No, and we uh we tend to agree on what's the coolest. We'll get a we'll get a selection of five to ten cover shots each time, and um, then we'll all have a hard look at them. And and uh, generally, as a team, we come to a consensus pretty quick. Certainly, would you consider other waterfowl publications competitors, or are they not really viewed that way? <laughs> sure we have we have competition yeah i mean we like to think that we're we're lucky that we're not in a crowded field you know like um like the deer hunting um segment right um there's so many different deer hunting mags we're we're lucky to uh to be in a much smaller field that allows us the freedom to uh to be really adventurous with our, with our cover photos and as you've seen in the past we have um really pushed it compared to other hunting magazines because we can and that's the reason yeah right. so while we have we have competition. It's not, it's not as ever present menacing and breathing down our necks um, as it is in something like deer hunting. So I know it's a lot more than you have time for in this podcast and, and I'm going to let you go soon. Cause I know you've, you've got things to do, but can you just talk us through the cliff notes process of putting a magazine together from start to finish? like you, start to you, finish like like you got a couple hours <laughs> well um, more so like you've got an idea so I, i'm talking more like when when the plan starts for a magazine that that's going to come out so like the snow goose for example when you guys start planning for the snow goose can you give me the cliff notes version for the steps that are taken to have that thing ready by the deadline yeah, it's um, it's a fun process because it's a broad one. What are what an editor and an editorial team are? Are the gatherers? They're out there looking for information, and they're people who just like pick the fruit off the trees and pull everything in. They're gathering, gathering, gathering all the time. So I have stories planned for next fall already because of okay. cool things that have crossed my desk, exciting subjects. I'm like, oh, this is definitely, and we're absolutely going to run this story um, next October, no matter what. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I have a, you have an editorial calendar. That's where it all starts. And you know you're going to have three to six feature stories for each issue. Okay. And, you know, we have themes, like I said. I'm not to repeat myself, but, like, we, we focus heavily on boats and motors in June. And 
And of course, the giant gear issue is like nothing else in, in waterfowling. We focus on everything. So we're moving. I've already picked my riders for that one, for example. That one goes to press in May. I've chosen my riders. We know all the subjects. And now we just start reviewing all the different, constantly at this point, filling the editorial calendar with the feature stories and gear that we want to see in those issues. So generally, you're working you're working a full year out in terms of thinking of the September issue next year. For instance, next year, we're going to focus heavily on geese in the September issue and probably move our focus on teal more into the August gear issue. Um, so we're already doing that planning a year out. And I already have a lot of writers selected. But um, I make sure that we have 30% uh, fluidity month to month with each issue. Meaning, if when some when Asher Tolliver comes up and goes, "Holy cow, we found this lake with nothing but a uh, quill geese on it <laughs> in the United States. We're hunting them uh, from that roost all around there, and it's like nothing I've ever seen." I make sure that I have room for that story. Got so you. you can plan your little happy butt off, but um, you need to make constant room in order. That's what wildfowl has been able to do is remain dynamic by um, making sure that we can cover, we have this flexibility to cover things in a way, in ways that other magazines have been able to right at the very end and keep it dynamic. And that's more important than ever now. So you can tie it into social and digital platforms. Mm-hmm. Uh, but to get back to your question, you plan your butt off, you make room for um, other stories to come in over the transom, so to speak, mm-hmm. toward the end. Um, and you get your feature stories to your artist with all your, heavily edited copy and all your photos and you pull in all your departments, your guns and loads department, your retriever and dog departments, you pull them in two to three months prior to your press date. Okay. So um, we went to press with uh, the December issue uh, early last week. And yeah, that one will hit the press, hit this newsstands here at the end of November. If I'm thinking straight here. Yeah. So about a little over a month and a half out, um, you're a month and a half out from the actual newsstand publication date, and that's when you go to press. So a month or two prior to that is when you're putting it all together, and your art director has all the photos he needs, all the uh, the, the copy and any supporting materials. You better have your cover shot in by then. Mm-hmm. You have to try and plan those probably six months in advance. Okay. Um, always waiting till the end to get the most exciting one we possibly can. Gotcha. And then the artist lays it all out, feature story by feature story, with your input on, you know, Asher Tolliver might send me uh, 100 photos on a story he's doing on Mallard Duck Hunting in the Timber. Mm-hmm. I'll narrow that down to 20 and flag the top five or ten that must be included to my artist and then he does his magic chuck is super talented and uh, he lays them all out and he has a, a team that of other art directors from other magazines that's the beautiful beautiful part of our company is we have so many there must be at least 15 art directors total from all the different titles and, and we work and support each other and that's another thing that makes us unique he reaches out and gets opinions and thinks about ex- new, new ways to make it fresh and exciting and uh, lays out each story and then we collaborate on what they look like and i'm like no that photo is cool but that guy's in blue jeans i don't like that and mm-hmm. might kill that photo you know and um if it's something that's really off and there's something not right about it you know we, we we really scrutinize it for that and we're just thinking all the time about the reader and trying to, to see it through their eyes and what's more exciting what's what's interesting we make sure the story isn't about the writer it's about what's interesting to the reader 
and what they will uh, take away from it. Then it all comes together in what's called a map. Um, our production team, in our uh, case, Leah Jaro for uh, Wildfowl, will lay out, you know, it's cool. Okay, it's going to be a 120 page magazine. Here's how much we have for features, and here's how much we have for departments, and 40% for advertising, and create a map, so to speak, page to page. And we all, whew, I'm getting exhausted. I'm getting overwhelmed at how, how much we really do here. <laughs> but uh, that's it. We take, take the map, and then we to make it to wrap it out. We plug the feature stories in there in the departments, try and balance the ads and where they should go intelligently to, to make everyone the happiest in terms of uh, content that makes sense being by other stuff. And uh, that's how, and then we slap the cover on it try and write the most exciting cover lines we can to reflect the content because the content's always there if we do our job, but you still got to sell it, you know, and we try and do that with the cover. And then we uh, send it to press after a heavy, heavy, heavy editing and proofing process. Mm -hmm. By the time it gets hits the press, we uh, probably have looked at it five or six different times. Mm -hmm. There's this cool program. Gosh, it was only 15 years ago. We'd lay out proofs, they were called, printed layouts of each page of a magazine all the way across the floor of the office and, <laughs> and proof things that way. Yeah, and then FedEx them back overnight with corrections. Wow. Uh, but now the awesome software called Vir Virtual Publisher that you can do it all online. Jeez. Makes it easier to do corrections, which is really nice. Wow. I hope that was not deadly that, boring. No, that was, no, that was, that was <laughs> awesome. You know, so, so you would say 70% of these, you know, these scheduled magazines that are coming out, 70% of them are, are a year in advance. I mean, 70% of this thing is laid out a year in advance, you'd say. Uh, six months to a year. Okay. Yeah. And then you leave yep. that, you know, 30 ish percent for wiggle for the most exciting things that could come between that time and when it's deadline. That's exactly right. Now, Wildfowl, we strive hard to do that because um, a lot of people just like to get the hay in the barn, so to speak, especially with all the, well, it's they'll say, hey, anything dynamic. Yeah, well, it's just nice to have it done, and you can do them a full year in advance, and, and we try not to not to totally close the door on any of the issues for that reason. Mm -hmm. And, I, and you know, it's easy to uh, say, oh, well, we can do anything cooler, dynamic, or uh, there's some crazy new technique coming up, decoying, or um, – you know, something about a new 20 gauge load that makes it super relevant in the waterfowling world where wow. 20 gauges haven't been in the past or something. Oh, we'll just cover that online. We'll just cover that online. No, we try and get it in wildfowl if humanly possible and rely on sources like you guys um, to help us stay abreast of keeping everything fresh and dynamic. Dive on does a really cool job about that. You guys, you. you guys have put the, my motto has always been, even since the 90s, when I was a junior editor, was, let's make hunting cool, you know, <laughs> make hunting cool. And uh, you guys, have, and it's it's harder said than done, you know, because it's such a, it's such a, a sport with such a deep history and passion and pedigree and the sure. emphasis on conservation and, and uh, defending this lifestyle that we love against people who would attack it. Um, that's that very serious side of it. But you guys constantly remember to keep it fun because it's got to be cool. Uh, and fun in order to have enough relevance that anybody wants to continue it, right? Definitely, man. We want to be as, as fun and relatable as we possibly can while still respecting the the heritage and the history of the sport and everybody that's done it before us. And I think we can continue to, to find that perfect blend 
between the way things are done now and the way things used to be done. So that that ultimately that's the goal with what we're doing. One hundred percent. You guys are walking that line perfectly. My highest compliment to you is that their dive bomb um, stickers splattered all over garbage cans and all this stuff. And, I, and I'm not the one doing them. It's, it's my kids and, and my wife. She, you know, she did some hunting with me. I joked that she only wants to hunt when she has a TV camera pointed at her, but um, <laughs> she was on the world of bread, a TV show that I did for a while, a lot. And, but she hasn't had much chance since we knocked out three kids in five years and she's gotten kind of drifted from it. But I compliment to you guys, as far as being relatable, um, she just loves that whole campaign you guys have with the, <laughs> like I said, the wood duck that's yeah. looking like a lumberjack. We just jacket. dropped a new one. Have you seen it? Do you see Mr. Peanut? I saw it, yeah. <laughs> that's going to be my friend tax too. Uh, when we get off this phone is, is I need, I need one of those t-shirts. The Sandhill crane looking, the peanut farmer. Just, yeah, there's no one that can be, uh, offended by that. There's no way of being disrespectful, but it's making it relatable and fun. And, uh, my wife grabbing those stickers and sticking them on her. Um, coffee mug and everything just tells it. me, you know, that's you're, you're you're crossing boundaries, uh, hunting with your with uh, what you guys are doing. Besides your your amazing product that's is out awesome. there, that's making awesome. everyone be more successful, and and uh, so they can mean mug in the photos. You know, yeah, that's right. <laughs> that does me. kill me. That's own. It's if that's you know if that's how guys want to take their pictures. That's that's totally fine. But I, I just. <laughs> I can't wipe the smile off my face, Skip, whenever we have an incredible hunt and things come together the right way. And it just, I, I get on Instagram and I'll see these just incredible hunts, beautiful scenery. These guys just look so angry. And I'm like, dude, what are you so angry about? Like, <laughs> smile. The only thing I'd be upset about with a cur- with a cooter pile like that, the only thing you could be upset about is how, how long you're going to take to clean those yeah. birds, right? <laughs> Get all hands on deck. Usually run through them, through them oh, pretty yeah. quick. But, you know, Skip, you're joining us for a couple of days in February for, for late dark geese. I believe February 7th, 8th in Kansas with Wing Chaser Outdoors. We're looking forward to uh, to getting a hunt with you. It should be a good time, man. Oh, I can't wait, man. It's uh the last year, everything came to a stop, and so many great plans became we were derailed. And old Ramsey Russell told me on a phone call a couple months ago, he's like, "Man, Skipper, I think when when this <laughs> when this year thing winds down, he goes, it's going to be the Roaring Twenties, you know, all over again. But it's going to be the Roaring Two Thousand Twenties." And he was talking specifically about hunting, and I think he's one hundred percent right. And, getting to hunt with you guys in kansas like i just can't wait to do it i'm gonna hunt my way there all the way across eastern colorado and all the way back um hunting colorado ends up with a hashtag somewhere in kansas (laughs) all my kansas buddies hate me for it but you know i'm gonna try and put a spotlight on colorado because the hunting here is terrible tell everyone absolutely well I've, i've i've been known to do that quite often uh can't always believe what you see on my page because i might be in the wrong direction <laughs> no way man it's uh it's too uh too many folks out there i see the just in this little non this non-waterfowl destination valley i live in the escalation and pressure yeah. year to year is uh is amazing to see that's probably because there's not a lot of public land but but anyway back to the point i can't wait to hunt with you guys it's it's really looking forward to it and it's an excuse to cross a lot of good ground between here and there on the way definitely well skip i appreciate your time man i really 
really enjoyed this one. I know you feel like, ah, you know, you do it every day, but I'm telling you, I, I was, I was hanging on to everything you said, talking about the magazine and the whole process. I, I think it's very, very interesting. I think our listeners will find it very interesting. You've been doing it your entire life. Um, you know, so it's just another day in the life, of Skip Knowles, but I thought it was awesome. And I sure appreciate you coming on and just joining us and, and all the, um, the love you guys have shown dive bomb on wildfowl uh, above and beyond. It's, it's certainly appreciated. We love the magazine. I look forward to getting them on my desk and, um, and, and reading through them because the quality of the material in there, it, it's always top notch. And, um, you know, we're, we're proud to, you know, be a small part of, these magazines. So I appreciate your time, man. Thank you so much for joining me today. I appreciate it so much. Asher, um, your brand, your dynamic brand is one of those things that keeps us um, moving forward and keeping it fresh. And I really appreciate your time as well. And um, we want to hear from folks too. reach out to us on Instagram. If, if you listen to this and uh, had any ideas, we are completely open to ideas. And, and as to your question earlier, as far as queries or, or stories from new writers or photos, submissions from anyone, um, man, as long as it's cool and, and uh, is a, we know it'll be of interest to the audience, uh, we are open to anybody's suggestions or inputs, and we'd love to hear from everyone. Actually, you guys have just been great. And, um, a, lot of, a, lot of, a lot of excitement back into an already exciting sport uh, at a critical time, and uh, we really love what you guys have done and appreciate your support for a wildfowl as well and look forward to doing more with y'all in the future starting with uh chasing some feathers in february so thank you no doubt my friend well i will i will talk to you very soon skip you have a great rest of your day sir thanks asher talk to you soon thanks buddy bye bye all right there it is wildfowl magazine editor-in-chief skip Knowles. you can find them on instagram at I believe it's just Wildfowl Magazine. Yeah, Wildfowl Magazine. Go give them a follow. Great, great magazine. Top-notch stuff. YouTube. Go subscribe. Videos are dropping like crazy. They're doing awesome. We appreciate the support from all you guys that have subscribed and have been watching. Everybody else, help us out. Go show us some love over there. Watch a video. Leave a comment. Thank you all so much for joining us. We sure, sure appreciate it. Hope you all are having a great waterfowl season thus far. Until next time, y'all be good. Thank you for listening to the Dive Bomb Squadcast.